0: Uh, Church, you ever have these moments when, uh, like, the Spirit of God is just speaking to you? I'm uh, I'm in my chair right over here, and I'm I'm having one of these moments. We're singing this song, and Fulton night you did it too. The song Abba, and in the quiet moments of that song, I can I can hear a small child, maybe a baby, just kind of. Cry out, ba 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 ba, and I I just—it's a beautiful moment of us crying out to our Father in Heaven, right? In those those pure words. Also, I love having kids around. It's just so cool. So, parents, if you're like nervous about, like, you know, do I bring my kiddo into into worship, you know, and it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. That has nothing to do with the message at all today. I just, I wanted to share that because it's like a fringe benefit of the job. Um, we're in a series right now called To Be Continued. And uh, this series is is really all about how if if you found the church as anything except for engaging and inspiring, if you've maybe found the church as, as boring or, or maybe something you didn't want to be a part of, that's on me as a church leader. That's on us, people who call this uh, their church, home, uh, the church. That's on. That's on Christians everywhere. That's not on the church. That's not on Jesus. Because we open up the Bible and we can read the story of the church as it was meant to be, and it is riveting. It is inspiring. It is engaging. And that's what this series is about. Is trying to trying to gain some of that perspective uh, here in our lives. Um, we're going to start it off here today uh, with a conversation. And maybe you've had one of these conversations in the past where somebody sat you down in kind of a serious talk, right? And they're going to offer you constructive criticism. And you're going to try the best that you can to not be defensive in that moment. But it's like the dinner table kind of conversation. Where it's like, hey, man, something I got to tell you. And you're, and you're bracing yourself because they have the look. It's like eyeball to eyeball kind of look. And, uh, and, they, and they give you a word and it's not something you wanted to hear. I don't want to hear it. But it's also at the same time exactly what you need to hear when, when you get a moment to process that. I've had that conversation several times, more times than I care to admit, where somebody sits me down, maybe it's somebody here at the church and they're like, hey dude, and I just got to like point something out for you. And I'm like, you're, you're right. You're totally right. It's not something I wanted to hear, but it's what I needed to hear had a friend sit me down, eyeball to eyeball kind of conversation saying, dude, I like being your friend. I think that you like being my friend. The problem is it's really hard to tell at times. And I have this like moment of defensiveness and I'm like, no way. I'm not a bad friend. You're a bad friend. You know, I have this defensiveness. And he goes, hey, just pull out your phone and just look at the number of times that I've called you in proportion to how many times you've called me. And it's like the evidence sort of just speaks for itself. And he goes, it's like that when we hang out. I'm always the one to initiate. You're always on the receiving end. And you're cool with hanging out. and We have a good time. But listen, I think you're kind of a crummy friend and you could do better. And this is not a conversation that I enjoy being on the receiving end of. But it is something that I absolutely needed to hear. It's exactly in that moment what I needed to hear. Some of you have had that conversation, right? Some of you have been on the receiving end of uh, maybe it's a not a friend thing. Maybe it's a parent thing, right? Where somebody's going to point out that the way that you're going about parenting your kids is maybe not the best way. And it's so sensitive because it's so personal. It's also kind of unusual because we've only all had one childhood growing up and we think of it as normal. Whether it was or not, it's like 100% of the sample size that we have available to us. And so chances are it's whatever we had growing up is what we give our kids today, and then you're married to somebody who has a totally different way of doing it, and you two sit down, and they're like, "Hey, listen, you know, eyeball to eyeball, you're not going to want to hear this, but I think the way that you are parenting our kids is wrong, and it's not something that you wanted to hear. But looking back, maybe now you're going, that's exactly, exactly what I needed to hear. I have journeyed with people." Uh, along, uh, along a substance abuse and, and freedom from that kind of journey. And the number of times that they're like, man, my family, my friends, God, they sat me down and they tried to intervene. They tried to stop this path that I was on. They tried to get me to turn this ship around. Time after time, I said no. Looking back now, I didn't want to receive it. It's exactly what I needed to hear. You guys, the reason why I share that with you today is because we're going to open up the scriptures today and we're going to hear a story about a sermon that was preached so long ago. And I think it's exactly what some of us want to hear. And, and, and you're going, I don't want to receive it. And I just want to invite you to come with an open mind, open heart, to receive the fact that maybe there's something here that you needed to receive, even though you didn't want to. Uh, the story takes place in Acts chapter two, and we're going to go there in a moment. Um, we kicked it off Acts chapter one last week, and Jesus had just died forty days later. He, he spent this time with his uh, with his people, and he's kind of he's kind of gathering a crowd around him again. Coming back from the dead is probably going to do that, right? He's eating with his people, he's teaching his people, uh, and then. Lo and behold, he goes up on a hill and he's giving them his last word, kind of instructions last week. And then he ascends into heaven 40 days after he rose from the dead. And he says, you're going to go from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, Right now they're in Jerusalem and they're holed up in an apartment. And they're like going, I don't know how we're going to move from here to the ends of the earth. And it's kind of where we pick it up. And uh, let's start off there. So we're going to go to, if you'd like to follow along, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to kind of kick it off here with verse 2. 1. The words are going to be on the screen. Also, you're invited to, to follow along in a Bible. So Acts 2 verse 1 it says, when the day of, of Pentecost comes, you're keeping track of some math on this one, Pentecost, pent, right, like Pentagon 5, it means 50 days after the resurrection. It's 40 days he ascended, 10 more days they're holed up in that apartment. When the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. That's that apartment that I mentioned there a little bit earlier. And suddenly the sound like uh, like the, the sound of a blowing, blowing of a violent wind. Hold on to that. We're going to come back. Came from heaven and filled the whole house. So like the wind, the violent wind, the tornadic wind is now inside the house. I want you to like imagine the terror and the fright that is happening inside that little apartment. There's a tornado, okay? And they saw what seemed to be tongues, come back to that, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So two elements here. We've got, we've got fire, we've got wind, we put a little earth in there, and we've got an awesome R&B band. <laughs> Some of you are like, what in the world is that guy? You can google that, okay? That's a solid joke. You'll get there. You'll get there. But I do, make, I do want to make the, the, the comment here. We, we, we do have the, the wind and we do have the, the fire. Uh, I am of the opinion that this book survived for so long, not because the human authors were so clever, but because it was a divinely inspired word of God. That the, the spirit of God actually actually alongside these human authors, penned these words. And because of that, you start to be able to connect these things that are just just beautiful. So if we can go down this rabbit hole, just for a minute, as we talk about the wind coming now inside of this house. Words are important. Uh, words are important. The English language has something like 600-ish thousand words. It's a language that's still being developed. You know, Oxford English Dictionary has like new words that come out all the time. We, we make stuff up. It's pretty awesome. Um, Biblical words, biblical languages uh, were more ancient, more primitive, and they had far fewer words. Uh, Ancient or classic Hebrew, like the Old Testament was written in, maybe something like 10,000 words. Not not very many. So what you see is a lot of these words would do double, triple, maybe even quadruple duty. According to how they were used, the context would change on these things all the time. So when we see the word wind in the New Testament, panama. let me hear you say panama. Nice, way to go. You're nice. So you can bring up that volume just a little bit. I'm having trouble hearing you over here. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for, for wind is Ruach. Let's hear you say Ruach. 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 So Ruach in the Old Testament, panama in the New Testament. Well done. We look back in the Old Testament, we can start to see these words, uh, not the the wind blowing now, but remember, ruach and panama, Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we start to see the words pop up in some really interesting places. Genesis 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Bible, how the whole thing starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness covered it up. And the, not not spirit, not wind, the, the ruach, was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God was right there at the very beginning. Next chapter, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to pick up the pace. Eventually, we'll get through the whole Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 2. God creates humankind out of the dirt and out of the dust. God creates Adam, and he, he doesn't breathe. He ruachs His spirit into, his ruach, into the nostrils of that man. And he turns the dust into life. The power of God. Fast forward a little bit. Ezekiel 37. God brings his prophet Ezekiel to a valley. And it's not just any valley. It's a graveyard. It's covered in skeletons. Okay, Halloween is coming up. If you're looking for a costume, there you go. Your whole family can be the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel 37. It's biblical too goes to the valley of dry bones, and God says, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to these dead bones, this skeleton. And he does, and the dead bones, the, the ruach now, the wind, the breath, the spirit comes in and starts bringing these dead bones up, puts flesh, puts sin out, brings them alive. That's what the spirit, that's what the breath, that's what the wind does. It makes the dead things alive. And then we see Jesus pick this up a little bit later in John chapter 3. He's having a conversation with a Pharisee under the cover of darkness because Nicodemus is terrified that people are going to find out he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that you have to be born not just naturally of water, but he's talking about a supernatural birth, a birth of spirit. And then in the very next sentence, Jesus Flips the script and says, You know, that wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, and you can't tell where it's coming from, where it's going. But in the language that the story was recorded in, it's not a flip of a word. It's the same word. It's the Panama word that we learned a little earlier. You have to be born, not just naturally, but supernaturally born of the Panama. You know, that Panama blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound and you don't know where it's going. It's not a different thought. It's all the same thought for Jesus. And he's trying to explain that this is what the Spirit of God does. It makes dead things alive. Now we have to know that because that same panama, that same ruach, just showed up in that upstairs apartment after the resurrection of Jesus, 50 days post-resurrection. What's he there for? I'll tell it to you like this. Every once in a while, I got a new family that comes to encounter and, uh, and I and I awesome conversation. I'm going to pick on this story just a little bit, but it's like a regular thing. And so we're not holding anybody accountable, but especially me. But uh, somebody, comes to, somebody comes to encounter and they're like, hey, awesome. I love that you're here. You're making this a priority. Dig in. That's solid. You know, what, why today? What brought you here? And every once in a while, somebody's saying, you know what, honestly, like I grew up in church and, uh, and I want my kids to grow up in church. I'm here for a, for a moral education for my kids. I am here so that you can teach my kids like how to, how to be good people, right? They need that. And I, my response is three things, always three things. Uh, number one, I am so glad that you're here today with us. Like, welcome. I hope this feels like coming home for you. Number two, you are gravely mistaken at what, what we do here. And I want to let you know, we are far from teaching your kids how to be good people because the Ruach and the panama, the breath, the spirit, the wind of God did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. And that's what we're teaching your kids, right? And number three, I'm so glad one more time that you're here today. And I hope we'll see you again another time. But that's what the Spirit of God is showing up on site in Acts chapter 2 to do, to make dead things alive. Now, there's also fire, the presence of God. And I'll make this one much shorter. Every time you see the, the fire in the Old Testament, it's often, not all the time, but often associated with the very presence of God. You think of Moses at the burning bush, the presence of God. Take off your shoes, Moses, it's holy ground. You see the pillar of fire lead the Israelite people through the wilderness. You see Moses going up on, on Sinai and getting the law. And, and the smoke is like this, this shroud over the entire mountain. The presence of God, the sacrifices in the Holy of Holies, the fire, the presence of God. And He thank goodness, thank goodness that God's presence is confined to the temple in the Old Testament because it's it's fatal and it's fearsome. And now all of a sudden, a lot of commentators are writing about this scene with the wind and with the fire. And now the fire is like tongues like separated and now landing on each of the people. It's like that fire just broke out of that temple, just broke out of the Holy of Holies. And now that fire, the very presence of God is now resting on each one of those believers. And if you find yourself having the miracle of belief, the miracle of of faith that a dead man rose from the dead and the promises, if you believe that you will too, if you find yourself having the miracle of faith, that presence of God lives inside of you as well. Now, it's a bit of a side note, but I just want to say, because sometimes I also hear like, man, wouldn't it be awesome, wouldn't it be awesome to like live with Jesus, like to be able to shake his hand, you know, to like ask him your questions. Wouldn't it be awesome to like camp out with Jesus and ask him like all the stuff that's on your heart. And you know, somebody got to do that. His name was John. Probably like the best earthly friend of Jesus, right? John, you know, lived with Jesus, laughed with Jesus, loved, lived, laughed, loved. I don't know. John spent all this time with Jesus. He got to do all of those things. In the end of John's Jesus story, he goes, you know what? It's better. Jesus left and told me, listen, it's better that I go because you're going to get the Holy Spirit. Because what's even better than Jesus beside you is the spirit inside you. And so like we are at an advantage right now because of those tongues of fire representing the presence of God in yours and my life. Now, this is a very long and roundabout way of saying because you have that presence of God, he is, and I believe, supernaturally preparing you for a difficult word that you do not want to receive but could very well be exactly what you need to hear this morning. Now, a lot of you maybe have heard the story, the tongues you know, rest of fire rests on the people and they all start speaking in different languages. So again, a play on word. When, when he talks about the tongues of fire, he means that because it's the same word for different languages, it's also tongues. So everybody kind of breaks out and they're sharing all these different languages. They're sharing this story. And it's super appropriate because it's like the, this, this barley and wheat festival. It's the end of the barley festival. The wheat uh, planting season hasn't begun yet. It's spring break in Jerusalem and everybody's having a great time. They're out there, they're out there speaking all in different languages. People from all over the world are here for these festivals and stuff. And so they're kind of hearing what's going on. And they're like, I think maybe this group has had a couple too many. And so we read in verse 14. That then uh, Peter stood up with the 11 because they replaced Judas. And now there's 12 again. So Peter and the 11. And he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. And he said, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And Peter should have known. That doesn't stop everybody. Like, <laughs> it's spring break in Jerusalem. These guys are like, you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. So this is, I knew I'd regret that joke. Uh, but Peter stands up and he's going, no, 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 This is not gibberish that they're saying, right? This is, this is our very hope. And we can kind of make light of it because it, it was a wild scene. And that's honestly what, what people were accusing them of. Maybe, maybe they were drunk, but, but it does point to us something about those tongues, that gift of the Holy Spirit. That, that it's not meant—sometimes we see these, this gift of the Holy Spirit, and we see it done in a way that really only impacts the, the one that it's happening to. So if you've seen videos, or maybe you've been in a, a worship context like this, and somebody has broken out and speaking, like in tongues, and if it ever seems like it's pointed inwardly, that's not from God. Because the point of this gift of the Holy Spirit is to point us, point the whole world towards Jesus. They speak in these tongues and the point is to make this message go global. It's so not about just us. It's about getting this message out to the entire world. Okay, we continue on. And, uh, and this, is, this is part of that message that's, uh, that's pretty hard to receive. Okay, fellow Israelites, you know, listen to this. Peter is saying, this is his sermon. And I gotta say, I've given a lot of sermons, and, uh, and, I, and I help people give some sermons. And, and this is not a good sermon. I just, <laughs> I, like, there's no kind of narrative flow to it. There's no like, hook. There's not an angle. The takeaway's a little bit vague at times. And I'm just like, what in the world? Also, it, it's so insensitive. Like He's going like, to really go after some stuff. And I'm like, dude, you do not have the rapport with your audience to say these sort of things. All this is just to mention, like, it's the power of God, right? It's the truth that compels him. And even though you might look at it and be like, hey, it's it's just, I'm not sure if that holds up. It does. It does. Because, not because it's so clever or eloquent or wise, it's because the presence of the Holy Spirit inspired it. You know, every once in a while you're kind of like, maybe should should I talk to my neighbor about Jesus? And you're like, I don't know. What if I'm not clever or wise? What if I don't have the right thing? Listen. Like, listen to the Bible words, right? This stuff is Bible now, and it's in there. And and your words will be effective, not because you're so clever. Your words are effective because the Spirit lives inside of you. Anyway, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth uh, was was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. You guys were all there, right? Which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. He knew what he was doing and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is the central argument. But God raised him up from the dead. This is pure gospel right here, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It's beautiful, right? And he goes into the Old Testament, he starts quoting some of the some of the scriptures that they would have been familiar with, and then he lands the plane here in verse 30, 36. And he goes, Therefore. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I want to point something out. I want to ask a question, then I want to point something out. The question that I want to ask is who is the Israel that he's talking about here? And this is a time if we're like in a small group we'd like circle up and like talk about it together at our table groups and ask a a few questions in a study guide but because we don't have the time for that i'm just gonna give you some thoughts we have a few options when we talk about the israel whom you crucified that's the message oh that hurts right like you crucified him it's very seeker unfriendly who is the israel that you crucified jesus uh, some options that we have, uh, kind of thinking the, the geopolitical nation of Israel. Uh, Israel's been on the news a lot lately. And so we think, is it that? Is that what we're talking about? Uh, that Israel didn't exist in, uh, in, the, in the times then, in the first century. In fact, in the first century, Israel didn't even exist then. Uh, it, was a, it was a Roman-occupied territory. I doubt it. You know, whom you crucified, is he like looking at particular people in the crowd and going like, you were there. I saw you. Remember, this is Peter. He was there too. I don't think so. People were coming from all over the world from this festival. It's very unlikely that they were, that they were in the crowd. We answer that question, and I think it's everything. When we answer the question, who is the Israel that crucified Jesus? I think Peter is using that phrase theologically, He's using that phrase to simply say as a stand-in of the people of God, you crucified Jesus. The reason why I believe that, when we see Israel uh, uh, making appearance, particularly in the New Testament, we use that almost as the stand-in to describe the people of God. And the reason why I say that really is because because the entire book of Galatians was written. The whole book of Galatians, Paul wrote this thing, because the question is, who is the Israel of God? You know, is it the people group? So becoming, if I want to become a people of God, if I want to become in this family of God, do I need to join up with this particular people group? And a lot of people thought, yeah, I do. And so that means a few things. It means a few dietary restrictions, a few... Uh, Medical procedures, uh, those for for men in particular, that that was not exactly appealing. That has a recognition of some Jewish uh, festivals along in the calendar year. And the entire book of Galatians was written of saying, no, no, you know what? There is no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. These labels don't mean anything for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is writing this book of Galatians to describe Israel is the people of God. And at the very end of the book in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 6, just before his sign off, he's like, grace and peace to all of you believers in Jesus, the Israel of God. So we come to a passage like this. And we read, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. And you might ask yourself, who is the Israel that had Jesus crucified? It was me. I did. And this is the message that you didn't maybe want to receive this morning. But for some of you, maybe exactly what you need to hear is that you did too. It was our sin that caused him to go up on that cross. We have a saying around here that the foot, the ground at the foot of the cross is a level ground. It does not matter if you are an awesome, good little Christian kid that always went to church and just grew up on this stuff and never once wavered in your faith or if you came here today still a little bit inebriated from the night before, The ground at the foot of the cross is level ground, and it is absolutely absurd to say that. But it is all of our sin, it's all of our selfishness, it's all of our rebellion, it's all of our trying to do things our way instead of his way that caused him to go up on the cross. Now, because it's our sin that put him on the cross, it was his joy, Hebrew tells us, that kept him on the cross. It was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. For the salvation of sins, mine and yours, if we'll admit that together. And you know, and you know, this is again building on this theme of it's a difficult message to receive, but one we exactly needed to hear today. This news that our sin had Jesus crucified, that it's on us, that's good news. It's it's good news. Like, this is, again, the absurd economy of God that something like that, a deficit like that, can possibly be good news. And I'll tell you why it's good news. Suddenly now, we have an explanation for why the world is the way that it is. You know, you just look at everything, you just see how broken it is, see how awful it is, and you're like, going, Why? And now we look at it and we're going, it's because of sin. I mean, like, I have an answer for that. Sin that lives and cuts through every single human heart. That's, that's what it is. And you can go over to your neighbor across the fence and suddenly now you, like, have a grid to, like, see this whole world through. And your neighbor's going and, so, like, 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 I don't know, I'm super dissatisfied at work. And they're going, I can actually tell you why you're super dissatisfied at work. It, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, the work that you do lost its luster. It doesn't have anything to do w- with, like, your manager being a doofus. It doesn't, maybe a little, but, but it's so much more than that. Like, the reason why you're so dissatisfied at work is because you took your entire identity as a person and you asked your job to provide you an identity, and it was never made to do that. And this thing isn't standing up under the weight of what you've put on it. It was made, your identity was made to come from Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so like asking your job to do that, it's it's not just sinful, it's foolish. And that's why you're so dissatisfied, and why you always will be. The reason why you spent yourself up to your eyeballs in credit card debt, man, i just got to tell you, it's not because of like the new thing is so much better and you needed to have it. It's because you're serving the creation rather than the creator. And you're just on this, on this track of accumulating more and more and more and more is never going to be enough because stuff will never fully and finally satisfy you. If you have an infinite appetite, you need an infinite God to satisfy that. I, just, I want you to see that we have a reason for explaining everything wrong with the world. And it's bad before it gets better, it's sin before it's grace. And we get there. And the people, and they, they hear this, they get there. And man, it has an effect on them. Verse 37 When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And I said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And I just love that they asked, not what should we believe? You know, what, what should we think? What should we pray about this week? What should we do? But where I want to hang out today is the fact that they were cut to the heart. You find yourself cut to the heart? I mean, maybe, maybe sometimes, once or twice. Like open to that today? Somebody, somebody once told me that the longest 12 inches in the world is from our head to our heart. And that, that's where this message needs to live. Not in a cognitive, intellectual sense. Christ died and then rose. Yeah. Does it cut to your heart? You see, because it's, it's one thing to break God's rules. Some of you have kids. You know that. You know, we got a rule after dinner. You clean off you put your dishes in the dishwasher right when my kids leave the table and they don't put the dishes into the dishwasher that's breaking the rules that's different than when they not only don't put the dishes in the dishwasher but when my son goes into the other room and i look at him and i'm like are you forgetting something the dishes dishwasher any of this ring a bell and he looks at me dead in the eye and say oh, i did and i know that it's a lie but he did something there he didn't just break a rule did he some of you parents you get it he broke my heart Because he's lying to me. And I don't don't want his dishes. I want his relationship. I want his affection. I want his trust. That I am for him. You know, this sin, it doesn't just break God's rules. It breaks God's heart. And the people, you know, they hear this, and it's like they got it. And it had a profound, profound effect on him. Peter replied, In verse 38, he replied, repent, this is what you do, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And I want to just remind you, Exodus 32, God gives the law, and immediately the people could not keep the law. Remember, we are terrible at keeping God's rules. 3,000 people paid with their lives the fact that they broke God's law. I hope you appreciate the connection between now 3,000 people living because one man decided to stay, to stand in their place. 3,000 now are alive. It's this beautiful connection between the law and the grace. 3,000 people declare with one voice, I'm ready to be reconciled to God. I am ready to come on home. And they're cut to the heart. You know, we ask sometimes these questions like, how in the world does this little movement called the church break out of this like little patch of ground in the Middle East? How in the world does this little movement called the church break out of the first century. And it's not because the people were so clever or wise. It's not because the people were so smart or influential. It's not because there was a promise to give all of them these these riches, right? It didn't do any of that for any of them. I think it, it breaks out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, because this gospel told them the truth. They were not maybe ready to receive it, But it's exactly what they needed to hear, that they're broken and sinful people. And that's actually good news because it puts a label on everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's wrong with them. And Jesus is the solution. He could put them back together again. And so the question is, are you ready? And am I ready to like stand in that crowd to hear that word, Israel, you and me, had Jesus crucified and going like, yes, that's me. And it breaks my heart every day. And Jesus puts it together every single day. It's a little like, it's a little like this. This is a, a story that uh, it took place in, uh, in Wales, near England, in this little town called Bedgalert. In the little town, Bedgulert, uh, a long time ago, there was a feudal kind of system. It was a castle, and there was a lord of the castle. And the lord goes out, and he... Uh, He goes on a hunting trip. Successful or not, he comes on home. And I want you to step into his shoes as he comes home and he walks through the halls of his quiet castle, too quiet, and he goes into his son's, his newborn son's bedroom. And he sees two things. Number one, the crib that his son sleeps in at night is turned over and he can't find his baby. He can't find his son. And then he looks and he sees in the corner of that kid's bedroom is a great Dane, his family animal, his dog. And if any of you have seen a great Dane in real life, they're impressive animals. And this great Dane, quiet in the corner, has blood all over its mouth. And the feudal Lord knows what he has to do. Coming back from his hunting trip, he's already armed. And he draws his sword, and he goes over to that beloved family animal. And he kills him. He puts him down. And in the quiet, he goes back over to the crib that was overturned. And he puts it upright again. And he sees his son unharmed under the crib. And next to him, he sees a wolf lying dead, chewed up. And he puts two and two together and realizes that while he was away, a wolf snuck into his castle, found his helpless infant son in the crib. But Gellert, the dog, his beloved family, Great Dane, did battle with that wolf to the death. Just barely making it out alive, himself puts that wolf down to save the life of his son. And he had The audacity to punish the dog for it. I mean, cut to the heart is probably putting it way too lightly, realizing that what happened. So what the feudal Lord does is he takes his animal and goes to the town square in the the, the exact middle of the town and he erects a statue to his dog so that everybody, and I brought a picture of it here, can know the heroism of his dog, Gellert. And because he never stopped honoring that beloved animal, he uh, renamed the town, Bedgelert. So no one would forget. The reason why I wanna share that story with you is because um, we're the master. We're the Lord. We walked in, we made an assumption, and Jesus fought to the death to save our lives, our children's lives, and those who are so far off, and we killed him for it. <laughs> it's a, a big ask sharing a story with you today about a dead dog. Kyle McCrill told me that I could share the story. He's our youth leader. He's the dog guy, and he's like, you can share the story. But listen, listen, listen. Because this this is everything. We have to realize that as sad as we might get over a dog, we did this to our Savior, Jesus. And yeah, it's my aim today that your heart will be cut wide open in realizing the profound nature of your sin and his grace. And in response, repent and be baptized, every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. Repent simply means to turn around. Whatever road that you're going down, whatever you are caught up in, it is not too late to turn 180 degrees and to take that first step or two back on home. If you're withholding forgiveness from a loved one, if that substance abuse thing that I mentioned earlier knocked a little bit too close to home, if you're going down an internet trail in a browser history you're not exactly proud of, and I'm telling you, it is not too late to turn around to repent and to start coming on back home. For the forgiveness of sins. His name is Jesus. Church, I want to invite you to stand off and let's let's pray to that good and gracious God together. Our God in heaven, God, we thank you for being the God that we don't deserve. You're so good and you're so powerful and you're so just. God, we ask for faith, that supernatural gift, but we also ask. For your courage in our hearts to turn around. Turn around. There's something that's got a hold of our lives. There's a road that we're heading down, and it leads to destruction. It leads to death. Save us from ourselves. By your grace and your power, Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen.